Isn't it powerful when a victory is captured in song? I know that what we just heard in that clip is almost certainly nothing like how the Israelites rendition sounded. Because that was George Friedrich Handel. That was 300 years ago as opposed to over 3,000 years ago. But isn't there something stirring about the sound, the power of a mighty throng belting out those words to jubilant music? And doesn't the feeling of victory make you want to sing? How many of us can't resist the urge to stick on a favourite song and let rip? when we've had a great day, like, you know, like the results day, where you find out that you've passed all your exams, or when you've made it through a grueling year and you're finally setting off on that long-awaited summer holiday. And when your favorite team scores a goal and moves ahead in the football or the rugby, don't you want to blast out Swing Low Sweet Chariot or Bread of Heaven or whatever your song is with greater gusto? The desire to sing in triumph is natural, God-given perhaps. And of course, it can be misdirected in lots of ways that glorify unworthy things like self. But Moses shows us here in Exodus 15 that it can also be directed to God's glory. In fact, this passage shows us that the it shows us the power of song to inspire deeper, more undivided worship and hope in our God. So let's pray and ask for his help to see this. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these incredible words, for the, the gift of poetry and music. Lord, would you stir our hearts by the song that Moses and the Israelites sang today? and move our hearts to keep singing in praise of your mighty victories. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. I should just uh, clarify before we carry on, um, we're only doing up to verse 21 of Exodus 15 today. Um, which, so, we're, yeah, we're just doing the song, and next week we'll move on to the, um, the waters in the desert. So as we dive in, I want to begin with a very simple observation. When God saves, his people sing. When God saves, his people sing. So look at verse one again with me and try to ignore the title and the chapter division in your Bible just for a moment, because verse one flows straight on from chapter 14. Yahweh, the God of Israel, has saved his people from the cruel hand of their slave masters by parting the Red Sea to let Israel through and then bringing it crashing back down on the Egyptian army. Israel has learned to fear and trust their mighty God as a result. So what do they do? They sing. I will sing to the Lord for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. It's a very simple point. But I simply want to underline that it is completely natural and totally right for us to respond to God's great acts of deliverance with song. 
So if you are hungry to get back to singing together in person at church, I want to say that that is a right longing. And if you're not so wild about singing together, please don't give up on it. We all have different relationships to music and that's totally understandable. But I hope that you will see through the rest of this passage what a blessing it is to sing songs about God's victories. They are a gift. So when God saves, his people sing. Secondly, the song of victory expresses and inspires undivided worship. The song of victory expresses and inspires undivided worship. Look at verse two with me. The Lord has hurled Israel's enemies into the sea. So what do they sing? They sing praises. The Lord is my strength and my defense. He has become my salvation. He is my God and I will praise him. My father's God and I will exalt him. Do you remember last week how God fought single-handedly for Israel in Exodus 14? All they had to do was watch in silence and then walk on as the Red Sea was swept aside before them. God did all the fighting. Israel contributed nothing. So there was no room for boasting here. And Israel does exactly what they should in this song. They pour out praise. And they express their gratitude by affirming that Yahweh is not just a God, not even the God. He is my God, they say in verse two, because Yahweh has redeemed them. So they will be his people and he will be their God, just as he promised to Abraham in Genesis 17. Israel praises this God and rightly claims him as their own. What could be a more fitting way to respond to such a God? Isn't this the right way to praise him? The song of victory expresses praise. It is an act of worship where the people offer up what is already in their hearts. But it does more than that. It doesn't stop there. It inspires deeper worship because Moses and the Israelites start to retell God's mighty deeds in verses three to 10. Can you see how they do it in exalted, poetic language? In verse three, Yahweh is not simply a remote deity who zaps his enemies from afar. He is a warrior who marches out in a pillar of cloud to engage the enemy hand to hand. In verse four, he is, hasn't just quietly washed the Egyptians away like a little mud from his fingers. He has hurled them into the sea like some loathsome scorpion of the desert, which will never come near his children again. And it's not just the weakest of Pharaoh's army he's destroyed the stragglers at the back who couldn't get out of the sea in time. It's the best of his officers too, the nobles, the mighty heroes who sank like a stone. 
See that in verse five? No one can stand before Yahweh. He didn't simply stop the Egyptians in verse six. He shattered them like glass or pottery. Do you see what I'm getting at? The song deliberately magnifies God's saving acts in a dramatic way. The raw emotions and impressions from that day will fade in Israel's memory. The Red Sea will fall further and further behind in their rearview mirror as they move towards Sinai, then the promised land. But the song recalls that day afresh. Like a film, it projects God's deeds up on the big screen in the minds of the people. His mighty works loom large again as the song poetically replays the same event from different camera angles in, in a relentless series of vivid, even overwhelming images. So it continues in verse 7 to 10. God's anger burns like fire. It consumes like stubble. We can imagine the flaring nostrils and the hot blast of a furnace as his breath piles up the water and the sea congeals, solidifying like cement. The dramatic tension is heightened as the enemy boasts in verse 9, and Israel is reminded of Egypt's arrogant and murderous desires. Indeed, Egypt, as, as the superpower of the day, was a terrifying enemy especially for a nation of ill-trained and probably poorly armed slaves like Israel. The song reminds them how terrifying it was to have hundreds of thundering horses and rattling chariots rushing down towards them in a cloud of dust, with the Egyptian drivers hell-bent on slaughter and plunder. Yet their boasts were as nothing compared to the breath of Yahweh which was enough to plunge them to their watery tombs. Like a, a house of cards felled with a single puff of wind. Can you begin to visualize this in your minds? Do you begin to feel the awesomeness, the wonder of Yahweh's stunning victory in this great miracle at the Red Sea? That's what this song was designed to do. That's why they used poetry instead of prose. That's why they sung it instead of just reciting it. As we heard at the beginning, the effect would be even more powerful when sung. And that is the point. That is why we've got the song as well as the narrative description of events in Exodus 40. The poetry isn't there to graphically portray the demise of the Egyptians out of some kind of morbid fascination with death. And the musical setting wasn't chosen to fuel some kind of nationalistic hatred. No, poetry and music were chosen to stir the heart in a unique way and to stir it afresh in awesome wonder at God's salvation, his salvation of his helpless people. Poetry and music in the song of victory, inspire worship. And that is exactly where the song arrives in verse 11. Having recounted Yahweh's glorious deeds in such a stirring way, Israel can do nothing but 
gods. Who among the gods is like you, Lord? Who is like you, majestic in holiness, awesome in glory, working wonders? The song of victory inspires worship, undivided worship. Do you see that? Israel can only conclude that the God who so effortlessly and totally obliterated the greatest superpower of the day was unique among the gods, supreme over the gods. Don't forget that they lived in a world where polytheism was the norm, where every nation had its local gods, whose potency was either confirmed or undermined by the fate of their nation in war. But Israel is learning that there is no one like Yahweh among the gods. There is no self-existent, self-defining, eternal I am like him who is outside of creation and who rules over even the most terrifying and chaotic parts of creation, the sea. The other gods were not really gods at all. And so the song of victory inspires undivided worship. I wonder, does this song move you to worship? Does it make you glad to belong to the God of Israel? Because if you are a follower of Jesus, Israel's Messiah, who brings God's blessings and forgiveness to people of every nation. If you are a follower of Jesus, this is your God. You belong to the God who did such extraordinary things at the Red Sea. Doesn't that make you glad? To know that the mighty warrior who can topple a superpower with a breath is no longer your enemy. Doesn't it make you glad to know that your rebellion against him is forgiven at the cross of Jesus Christ? That this God now fights for you. And if you don't follow Jesus, do you begin to see how fearsome it is to have this God as your enemy, like Pharaoh? Will you come to Jesus as the only one who can reconcile you with this God? And will you come to Jesus who is this great God? Yet who came among us, not with overwhelming force, but with stunning humility to bear our guilt and shame on the cross. This song should inspire worship in our hearts. And we should sing victory songs like this regularly. We should sing them to keep on expressing our gratitude and to move our hearts to deeper, more undivided praise and awe. Do you see in verse 21 how Miriam and the women begin to repeat the song? And do you see how the declaration I will sing in verse one has become a command, sing in verse 21. God's people in their entirety should sing the song of victory again 
and again to keep on inspiring worship. We could sing this song today if we had a suitable setting recorded, which I'm afraid we don't. But it is also right that God's victory at the Red Sea draws our hearts forwards to a greater victory over our greatest enemy, the one who stood behind Pharaoh, the devil. We should sing of Christ's victory at the cross again and again. The cross, at the cross, Christ didn't just defeat human enemies. Colossians 2 verse 15 tells us that he disarmed the powers and authorities, i.e. The, the devil and his agents, making a public spectacle of them and triumphing over them. Just as one breath from the Lord was enough to plunge Pharaoh's vengeful schemes into ruin under the mighty waters of the Red Sea, so the, at the cross, the last breath which our Saviour exhaled as he gave up his life brought a tidal wave of justice and righteousness and mercy crashing down to smother all the devil's threats and accusations against us, sweeping away the record of sin which stood against us. We should sing of this victory in songs that retell it with poetic skill, with power and with beauty to stir the heart, like the song of Exodus 15. We should sing of this victory set to a variety of styles of music to connect with the different people in our church family. And that will become easier as we are able to sing more in person. Of course, we need to make sure that the words are true retellings, first and foremost. Otherwise, it won't be God's glory that is stirring our hearts, but other lesser things, like the subjective feel of the music. But music is a beautiful gift. And when it is rightly used, it can help us to become captivated with God's glory in the words we sing. So we should sing of Christ's victory in such a way that it, it does indeed stir our hearts to deeper, to renewed, to undivided worship. And as we do, I want to suggest that it will help us to love our God with more undivided devotion, just as it did the Israelites. We don't just sing to reflect how we feel. We sing to change how we feel. We can choose to sing throughout the week, in the shower, on the drive to work, with our household, in our home groups. So to redirect our hearts from the idols of our culture back to the true beauty of our God in his saving works. Why not try it? Sure, we can only sing one or two songs together after our in-person services at the moment. Though even that is a great improvement on where we were three months ago. But there are plenty of other times we can sing of Christ's victory throughout the week. Together and alone. And as we do it, it will help those elusive straight nine grades, as I believe A grades are now, 
or a first class degree or financial security or romance and physical intimacy or whatever it is that competes for our worship to pale again in comparison to our savior. The song of victory inspires undivided worship. Finally, there's one last thing for us to see in this passage. One more thing that the song achieves, and you'll be glad to hear that it won't take me half as long to cover it. The song of victory inspires hope. The song of victory inspires hope. Look with me at verse 13. Because of God's mighty hand, swallowing up his enemies, Israel could be confident that he would lead them with unfailing love. They could be confident that he would lead them to his holy dwelling. To the mountain of his inheritance in verse 17, which we know as Jerusalem. As Israel recounted God's mighty deeds, it gave them such confidence that they could speak of their future enemies as already cowering in fear, writhing in anguish in verses 15 to 16. They could speak of the Lord's dwelling, his sanctuary, his temple even, as already established. Of course, these realities weren't realised until the reign of King Solomon, between 300 and 500 years later. And even then, they were only realized in part, because Solomon's heart turned away from the Lord. And Israel started on a steady downward spiral towards exile. Yet, so mighty were God's deeds at the Red Sea, that Israel could sing of the fulfillment of his promises as certain. They, so obvious was his supremacy as the king of kings and the god of gods. They could speak of his reign as already established in verse 18. So the song of victory inspired hope. Hope for the future. And we are still in a similar position to Israel. The day when... God's heavenly sanctuary will be firmly established on the earth is still in the future. The day when his people will be irrevocably planted on his holy mountain to live forever in his glorious presence is still in the future. In the new Jerusalem from which Jesus will reign when he returns to this earth to make all things new. Just as Israel did many times in the centuries ahead, we know what it is in our hearts to lament the broken state of our lives, of the church, of the world. We know what it is to cry out to the God who seems absent or aloof. How long, O Lord? And the Bible also gives us psalms and songs that help us do that. But the song of victory inspires hope. Like Israel, 
we must keep recounting the Lord's mighty saving deeds, especially those at the cross, to inspire, to rekindle, to stir up renewed hope and certainty in our hearts. Songs of Christ's victory will help us do that. Because the God who saved an unimpressive and stiff-necked people from slavery in Egypt with such mighty power, who did not disown them despite their incurable spiritual adultery, who took on flesh, endured agony and shed his blood to redeem both Israel and Gentiles from every nation. This God will not, cannot fail to keep his promises. Of course, song is not the only way we recount these deeds. Our hope is ultimately rooted in God's words, the Bible. And that is what we must keep coming back to above all. That's why at the centre of our church services is a sermon, not an extended singing session. Song is not a substitute for reading and preaching God's word. But song is a precious means of God's grace that helps to work his words deeper into our hearts, stirring them up to renewed worship and hope. And that's why part of his word includes songs. So look forward to singing together again. In person on Sundays. In fact, come to our in-person communion services next week and join in as we sing outside after the service. And keep singing the song of victory throughout the week in whatever way you can. With anyone who will join in because it is God's gift to you to inspire renewed worship and hope in your heart. Let's pray to thank him and then we will do just that. We will sing together and I would encourage you to, to stand and sing as we do. Heavenly Father, thank you for the gift of song. Father, thank you that your word and uh, the forms of worship you give to us connect with every part of our being. Lord, help us to sing songs of your victory with renewed gladness, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.